Hello, and welcome to the inaugural podcast of Political Shading, sponsored by Somfy. I'm John Lawyer. And I'm Andrew Goldberg. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm living the dream here in our nation's capital. <laughs> um, we come to you live from beautiful Washington, D.C., right downtown in the Willard office complex. We are in the Big Wig Media Studios recording this podcast. Uh, we are part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and proud to be so. We'd like you to also follow us on Twitter uh, and send us any questions or comments to at Politics Shading on Twitter. That's at Politics Shading. One note I wanted to put in, we'd like to thank Joshua Espinoza, the composer of the beautiful intro music that you guys have been listening to. Joshua is a very talented studio musician, and he can be found at joshuaespinoza.com. He was great to work with, and we wanted to thank him for his artistic endeavor. It was really great. And we have a sponsor. I mentioned Somfy North America. We'd like to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. A lot of people ask me often, who is Somfy? Uh, Somfy is the biggest company you've never heard of. We're in almost 60 countries. We have almost 10,000 employees. And you've never seen these products because they're always behind a wall. They're behind a soffit. They're behind a ballast. These motors, they're very sophisticated, very energy efficient. They open and close a lot of the things and buildings you take for granted. Automatically opening doors, windows, shades, blinds, skylights, pergolas, and, and a huge segment of that market all over the world. Uh, they are headquartered in the French Alps. And in North America, we are headquartered in beautiful downtown Dayton, New Jersey. That's exit 8A off the turnpike. And, you know, we're essentially here to talk to you about the intersection of business, politics, policy, energy efficiency, green building, and, of course, sprinkle in a little bit of common sense here and there. So <clears throat> who are we? Uh, <laughs> Andrew, who are we? Who are we? Well, uh, Somfy, uh, being the company that sponsors this, is uh, a company that is engaged in providing some really fantastic uh, products for uh, businesses, for homes. Uh, the automated systems help to lower energy costs, which everybody wants to do. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? Um, and also, as well as helping to uh, increase and promote security in buildings through their automation. And really, why we're here in Washington. Why are we here? We're here because there is a lot of policy that happens here in Washington. Really? That it really, it's, it, it, sometimes it's hard to believe, but it is true. A lot of things happen here that really impact the economy, impact businesses, and certainly impact sustainability. And the ability of companies like Somfy to be able to provide products and services that help to save energy and, and help the environment. And so we want to be part of that conversation. Outstanding. And talk to us a little bit about you, your company. What are you? My company. Well, so I'm with Agora Consulting, and we're a small uh, government relations consulting shop. We work with uh, organizations and, and companies, great companies like Somfy, and helping them to, uh, I guess, understand and interpret and demystify the sometimes bizarre world of Washington <laughs> politics and really help them to help advocate for policies that promote their values and really help to advance good policies for the country. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, in reaction to that, my name is John Lawyer again, and I'm head of all government affairs for Somfy North America. And we thank you again for joining us today. Um, so 
why a podcast? And, and you know, we had to answer this question several times, both internally and externally. There's a lot of podcasts out of there. Sure are. And how, how are you guys going to differentiate yourselves uh, from everything else out there? And, and it's a great question, but... You know, Andrew and I, between the two of us, have combined 50 years of government affairs experience in Washington, D.C. Uh, we met many years ago when Andrew was head of federal legislative affairs and I was head of state and local government affairs. Say many, many years ago. Yeah, for the say. American <laughs> Institute of Architects, just on the other side of the White House complex here. And, and so it, it, it sort of is a great tool to get our messaging out on what we're doing. Some of our uh, colleagues who have... Um, uh, graciously agreed to join us on the podcast as interviewees to our inane interviewer questions. <laughs> and, you know, we, we want to also use this as an education tool. What are we doing? How are we doing it? Who are we doing it with? And why are we doing it? So after that long intro, it seems like uh, there's hardly ever anything going on in Washington, Andrew. And, and no, not at all. <laughs> not a, ever. Right. So give me a, give me a, like a, a 10,000 foot view of what's going on in Washington right now that affects that intersection of business and policy and green and energy efficiency, et cetera. Sure, great. Well, well, really, uh, a lot is happening right now, in fact, in Washington. You have, of course, you have a Congress that is divided. Republicans control the U.S. House by a very narrow majority, five seats out of 435. Wow. Democrats control the Senate, but barely, basically one or two seat uh, majority, very close. That's and of narrow. course, uh, a president, a Democratic president uh, in the White House. And we are right now, as we speak, about a year and a half or so away from the next election when all of those, most of those seats and the White House will be up for grabs. And so there's really is a lot of very energized, let's say, debate, <laughs> not just between the parties on a lot of these issues about the economy, the environment, uh, jobs. There's also debate within the parties where you're having, if in both parties, there's a lot of friction about the right, right way to go forward between those who are more moderate and those who are more kind of on the on the extremes. So you're saying that even within the, the partisan discussion, each party doesn't agree on a direction. Exactly. And I'll give you a really good example. So uh, as you may have heard, if you read the papers, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Congress passed and the president signed a bill to uh, avoid the United States government from defaulting on its debt, which oh, would have been the debt, the debt ceiling. Exactly. This would have been a real disaster for, for the U.S. economy, for the world economy, if the U.S. defaulted. Well, they got together, President Biden, Democrat, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican, negotiated a deal, uh, got the bill passed by a fairly good-sized margin. Uh, yeah, it was 300 to, to 150. Something like that, yeah. So yeah. you had a lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats voting for it, uh, signed into law, so we avoided the, 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 um, the possibility of a debt ceiling. The bill also then put some limits on spending going into next year and the year beyond. seemed like everything was, was fine. And this is what both sides agreed to. Exactly, exactly. Both sides agreed to it. Uh, Republican leadership, Democratic leadership agreed to it. Well, fast forward about a week, so this is going to last week, and in the House, there were a number of Republicans who are part of what's called the Freedom Caucus, who are really much more, as a far right, really very passionate conservatives who were very unhappy with the deal because they wanted to see more spending cuts. And what they did was they basically blocked the House from taking from doing anything. So Republicans can they do that? They they can because the margins are so tight. If this case was 11 Republicans said we're going to vote against moving forward on legislation, joining with all the Democrats to do that. And so activity on the floor stopped. Now, the bill they were, they, were, they were supposed to bring up was a Republican priority. It was a bill to prevent the government from banning gas stoves. Now, long backstory on that, on whether the government was going to ban gas stoves. Right. 
Nonetheless, it was a Republican priority that Speaker McCarthy wanted to put forward. And basically, these 11 Republicans from the Freedom Caucus said, no, we're not taking up anything because we're still upset about that debt ceiling deal. So they take a procedural vote to move forward before exactly. they talk about a piece of legislation. And that's actually a point where legislation can be holed up? Exactly. So in the House, uh, there's a committee called the Rules Committee that sets the rules for debate. And so the way it works in the House is you first have to debate and vote on the rules for how you will debate and vote on the underlying <laughs> bill. Yes, this is why sometimes watching C-SPAN can be uh, a little bit of a, a good cure for insomnia. So it's not just about the uh, I'm just a bill video from Schoolhouse Rock? No, unfortunately, it's a little more complex than that. <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah. So basically, the, these 11 Republicans uh, blocked action and Speaker McCarthy had to send members of Congress home, said we can't get anything done for the week. And so you had the situation where you had these more, let's say, you know, f far right House members going up against their leadership, their Republican leadership, and saying, we're not happy with what you negotiated. We're not happy with the deal. And so we're going to basically gum everything up uh, until we get our demands met. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this was a bipartisan agreed to debt ceiling solution. It was. Like you said, it got 300 votes. In, in the House, it got, um, again, about 60 or so votes, more than 60 uh, in the Senate. Um, you had, yes, you had some you know, liberal Democrats who were against it because of the spending cuts. You had sure. conservative Republicans against it because they sure. didn't cut enough. Did the liberal Democrats hold up the, the rule? No. Oh. Well, I guess I should, I should say they did hold it up as, as Democrats do. Basically, in Congress, no matter which party is in power, the minority party always votes against this rule. Sure. But the normal thing is that if you're in the majority party, you vote for the rule to move forward. In fact, it's been 20 years since a rule was a defeated. A single rule. A single rule was defeated. Good Lord. Um, so where are we now? So earlier this week, uh, they, 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 they talked, they negotiated, and they basically came to a sort of temporary agreement, a truce, if you will. Uh, between these hard-right Republicans and uh, the Republican leadership. Uh, now, one of the outcomes of that is that they agreed that the Republicans in the House would actually now work to cut even more spending from the budget for the upcoming fiscal year. So the bill, the agreed-to bipartisan debt ceiling deal, said they had a freeze spending in the next year. So the spending levels would be the same as, as the current year. Okay. Zero change. Right. So sort of a, just a, here's where we are right now, and for the next two years, that's where we'll be. Exactly. And effectively, it probably would be a cut because of inflation, so there would be an effective cut, but the numbers would be right. the same. What Republicans agreed to in order to get things moving again and to appease the these hard-right members is cutting an additional 8% of the budget for programs. Now, that doesn't sound like maybe a lot, but when you're talking billions upon billions of dollars, right. it could be a lot. So, for example, uh, for uh, Department of Labor programs, health care, education, they're talking about cutting another 29% from the current year. For transportation programs, housing, fundings, housing funding, uh, cutting it by 25% over the current year. So some really deep cuts. And I'll mention for um, energy programs, uh, things like the environment, energy and the environment, another 35% cut in funding. And that's going to take a big chunk out of a lot of these government programs. So correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of these programs recently received uh, an increase in funding from things like the Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act. That's right. Yeah, they received a one-time infusion of money back in 2021 and 2022. But the funding for the current year then kind of settled back down to a, to a, to a 
the normal, let's say, level. Right. So what they're talking about now is what the Republicans in the House are now agreeing to do or trying to do is cut that even more. So from the baseline of what it is, yeah. another almost 10 percent across the board. Exactly. And in some cases, like on energy environment, a 35 percent cut. That seems a little disingenuous because didn't they agree to this already? Well, the argument, of course, is that the, the Freedom Caucus members, they say, well, we didn't agree to this. This was negotiated between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden. Are you a Republican or not? Well, that's a good question. And that's really the issue, right, is, is what are you loyal to the party? Are you loyal to your constituents? Are you loyal to what's being talked about on Fox News or on Twitter, things like that? Right. And here's the, the challenge I'll say is that even if the House does vote for these larger spending cuts, the Senate is not going to go for that. The Senate, which is controlled by Democrats, right. barely, but controlled by Democrats, is not going to go for these cuts. They're going to stick to the agreement, which was a freeze in spending. The White House, President Biden, is going to stick to the agreement, which was a freeze in spending. And so come the end of September, when the fiscal year ends, if they can't all agree on what that spending level should be, and they can't pass a bill to keep the funding going, the government will shut down. That sounds like another cliff moment that we were about to fall off on. Uh, if it smells like a cliff, it looks like a cliff, it's a cliff. It's a cliff. Um, and, and, and to be fair, not probably not as serious as if we defaulted on the debt. Default, right. But we've seen in the past, I mean, there's been a f several times over the last few years where government has shut down. That means national parks close. Federal workers are, are furloughed. Important programs that help a lot of people and serve a lot of people will not go forward while the government is shut down. So that's really where this, quote unquote, hits home outside the Beltway. Exactly. And so what it means is, for example, to give a more specific example, is if, if you are, uh, let's say you're involved in energy efficiency and programs like that, the Department of Energy has a lot of programs to support research into energy efficiency, helping to work with code development, uh, building code development uh, groups to develop codes, things like that. A lot of staff work on these. If the government shuts down, they can't do that work. And that, that freezes, it stops. And if you're anybody who gets any kind of benefit, whether it's public housing or school districts getting funding for, uh, for various programs, that won't happen until Congress and the president can agree to restart the government. Well, but correct me if I'm wrong, and this is just, maybe I'm being too logical, but doesn't this also hurt the districts where the Freedom Caucus members are from? Well, John, I would say that while common sense is a part of this uh, podcast, it's not always a part of uh, what happens. Well, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm being facetious here, but it is true. It, it does hurt everybody because there is a federal role in, in every district, in every part of the country. Right. So, and we've seen in the past, we've had a number of these shutdowns over the last 20, 25 years or so. Right. And they can be very damaging. And certainly the public don't want that. The public don't want government being shut down. And I would add, it doesn't really, it's not really a great look for the United States on the world stage if its government keeps shutting down. I don't think most countries kind of deal with this kind of situation. And so it's not very helpful in that sense. I was reading, a, you know, and, and we, we, we talk a lot about polling here in Washington. But I was reading a, 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 an article about a, a poll that basically said that you know, when thusly explained to the people who's basically are back home in these districts, none of them want a debt ceiling default. None of them want a, a government shutdown. You know, veterans, health care, federal programs, exactly. et cetera. So uh, why the seesaw between sort of the reality of what these people who voted to put these uh, ostensibly Freedom Caucus members in office and what they're trying to do. What, what's the end game? 
Well, that's a really good question. And in some ways, there really is not a clear end game, uh, because the fact is, to get any kind of policy passed, any budget passed, any spending level passed, you need to have the House, the Senate, and the White House. Right. And the reality is, if that, if neither party controls all three of those policy-making centers, as we call them here, then you're going to have to negotiate. You're going to have to find some middle ground. The challenge, especially in the House, is this. Over the years, what we've seen, because of the way redistricting has worked and this, the districts have been drawn, is you have more and more of these very safe Republican districts and very safe Democratic districts. You've heard about gerrymandering, I suppose. They create these really weird-looking districts to kind of group all the Democrats or Republicans together. And what that means, if you're a Republican, let's say, in one of these heavily Republican districts, your threat in terms of re-election isn't from Democrats, because there are very few Democrats there. Right. It's from the right. It's from somebody, a Republican, who is even more right-wing than you are, coming and challenging you in the Republican primary. And the same is true on the Democratic side. And so what that does, that creates an incentive then for, for members of Congress to take the, the most extreme positions in terms of uh, what, how to deal with these issues. Just to appear like they are going further to the left, exactly. right. Uh, right, exactly. And to forestall somebody from coming in and saying, well, they're not liberal enough or they're not conservative enough. Perhaps you've heard the phrase a rhino. And I'm not talking about the big animals in, in Africa. A rhino is an acronym for Republican in name only. And that is like one of the most devastating uh, epithets you can put on a Republican if you are to say they're a rhino, meaning, well, yeah, they have an R behind their name, but they're not sufficiently Republican. And we hear about dinos, dinos also on the Democratic side. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball, but didn't the Supreme Court recently render a decision that said that a lot of this gerrymandering was illegal? So that's a good question. And, and it's good you mentioned curveballs because last night was the congressional baseball game. <laughs> so uh, a actually, favorite here in the district. A favorite. It actually was better attended last night than most of the Washington Nationals games I, in the same I state. think it was. They may want to keep yeah, playing. I don't know. Exactly. But to your, to your point, you're right. So in a case about a week ago, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four, uh, in the case of Alabama that Alabama had drawn its districts in a way that disenfranchised uh, African-American voters. So in Alabama, there are either five or maybe six districts. Only one of them uh, has an African-American member of Congress, and it was drawn in a way to basically pull black precincts together in, in, in one district to guarantee that, that you'd have only one African-American member. And so the decision basically said you have to have at least two well, in this case, yeah, they had to draw it in a way that was fair based upon the Voting Rights Act. So what the court generally has found is that drawing districts in ways uh, that are based upon sort of ethnicity or, or disenfranchising voters because of, of, of the color of their skin, for example, that or they said— economics. Or economics. Let's face it, race is Well, of course. Economy. Yeah, that those are, are unconstitutional. However, as of this point, doing it purely on a partisan basis to try to get all the Democrats in one district or Republicans, if there is no kind of that racial or economic element to it, right. that's okay, according to the Supreme Court. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> so that's why you end up with these crazy districts that don't seem to connect, but because they're pulling in all of the Democrats or all the Republicans. And the result is not the only reason why the House is so polarized, but that's a big part of it. Huh. Well, I... I all that to say, and, and I know it's a lot to absorb because I've been doing this for 20, 25 years, and it's a lot for us to absorb. Exactly. Right? Um, we have a guest on the line who's waiting for us, and I'm really excited about uh, our first inaugural guest. Our very here first on one. Political yeah. Shadings. Why don't you tell us about our, uh, our guest star? Absolutely. Well, well Russ Carnahan. Well, he'll be joining us today in a little bit. He is uh, he was a member of Congress from uh, the great state of Missouri. The Show Me the State. The Show Me State from St. Louis. Uh, he served in office, and he um, 
we talked a lot about kind of members of Congress who are being partisan and polarized and playing for the cameras. And he is really, he really was the kind of congressman you want. He was somebody who worked on the issues, worked in a bipartisan way, connecting with Republicans. Uh, and he's, he was a Democrat, yeah. uh, but working together on legislation. And when he was in Congress, he became a real leader, a national leader on green building issues. In fact, he founded the very first Congressional High Performance Building Caucus, oh, cool. which is a way to get members of Congress to really understand and, and, and support policies to make buildings greener. Uh, since leaving Congress, uh, he's continued that work. Uh, he and I have co-founded a, a coalition called Building Action, which is designed to bring folks throughout the building sector together to advocate for policies to transform buildings. Uh, and he's really just a great guy who really understands the policy, understands the kind of the politics, um, is, is really understands what it takes to get things done. And he's the kind of member of Congress who would, despite all the partisanship and gridlock and everything else, he got things done. He really was able to move legislation forward. So a really great guy, uh, really knows a lot, and, and, and is, is just a, a very thoughtful, uh, kind of sincere leader. Well, we're proud to have him, and it sounds like he's going to be an amazing guest. Right after the break, we're going to talk to former Congressman Russ Carnahan. We'll be back to you in a second. Thanks. And now to our guest this week, former Congressman Russ Carnahan from the great state of Missouri, the founder of the Building Action Coalition. Congressman, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. It's great to be with you and, and great to be talking about this subject. Outstanding. So let's get right into it. Andrew, do you have any questions for Russ? Sure. Um, and Russ, great to see you. Um, you know, in Congress, uh, when you were there, you really were a national leader on green buildings policy. I mean, how did you first get interested uh, in this issue? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I had served on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee and the, the subcommittee that oversees uh, all the federal buildings. Uh, and so we were obviously focused on the, the federal building stock uh, and the federal government being the biggest owner and operator of buildings in the country. Uh, and I also served on the Science and Technology Committee uh, and was always interested in new technologies and the difference they can make uh, in our society. And, uh, and then finally, I was the, the founding member of the Sustainable Energy and Environment uh, Coalition uh, in the Congress. And one of the things I noticed in a lot of the debates and conversations was often you'd hear people talking about um, you know green energy from power plants and in the auto sector and often uh, they didn't even talk about buildings and if you're serious about buildings you have to have them as part of that equation and so uh, from that really frustration of the kind of lack of of the built environment being part of those broader conversations uh, really launched the High Performance Building Caucus to really highlight that in in our policy conversations and in, in legislation. So are sustainable buildings a partisan issue then? Uh, no. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter your political party. We all live in and use buildings. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, um, we saw a, a big change, you know, in general, if you were trying to generalize, I guess, on political parties, often you would see uh, 
Democrats uh, maybe more out front on environmental issues and Republicans more out front on business issues. But the interesting thing that we've seen with green buildings is <clears throat> it's become good business. And, and, you know, when businesses look at this, they may not be coming at it as, you know, they're an environmental tree hugger, uh, but they're doing it for their bottom line, for their shareholders, for their brand. And so that's been one of the biggest differences I've seen. Technology has certainly helped drive that, a lot of innovation in the green building space. Uh, but that, to me, opened up uh, a real bipartisan effort around green buildings uh, that often had been missing uh, in the mm. past. Mm. Got it. That's, that's great. And so, of course, after, after Congress, you, you really kept your toes uh, in the area and, and co-founded Building Action. What, what is that? Well, uh, with, uh, with you, uh, my friend Andrew Goldberg, uh, we had <clears throat> met during my green building work in Congress and uh, it was great to reconnect post-Congress. And we always, I think, envisioned that green building uh, policy movement to grow into a, a bigger coalition that had a, a bigger impact. And so it was really the, the reason behind the Building Action Coalition uh, being founded thought there was still an opportunity to build a very broad, diverse coalition of, you know, builders and users of buildings and people who make technology for buildings that can really have a stronger voice in this debate about policy and funding uh, for green buildings. And as I said earlier, the federal government uh, just by themselves own and operate more buildings than anyone, but they can also set a really great example uh, for the private sector and driving standards, and uh, we've seen that as well. So, uh, to me, it's been a it's really a great opportunity to build that coalition, but also see its impact, uh, frankly, in several of the major historic pieces of legislation that came out of uh, the past Congress, uh, and that you know we're we're seeing implemented today. Yeah, that's great. And yes, full disclosure, I, I am the co-founder with, with Russ of Building Action. We're a small family, and, and Somfi is a member, which we are greatly appreciative of. And I keep thinking about, I think, one of the first meetings we had, or days of meetings we had with Building Action, when on the same day we met with the Chamber of Commerce, which is, of course, a very pro-business organization, and the building trades at the AFL-CIO, which is, is labor, and the message I think from both was exactly the same. It was we want to build, we want to build more, create jobs, and 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 a recognition that sustainability and green buildings was was was, was an important uh, kind of value and element. So so I think that's really uh, encouraging. It seems that people are are beginning to get that message. Yeah, I, I bring up an interesting point. So at the intersection of sort of where policymakers and green building sort of technology techniques, trends, et cetera, meet. What are you seeing, Congressman, as sort of where that intersection sort of comes together? What are the, what are the policymakers and the trends within the green building policy? How is that, how is that marrying up? Well, uh, 
generally speaking, technology is ahead of policy. And so policymakers are usually playing catch up. That's great. Uh, when it comes to policies that, you know, maybe the old policies don't fit the new technology. Um, you know, we've seen, um, you know, a lot of examples um, where, you know, whether it's, you know, green roofs or solar or, you know, technologies that can, uh, you know, break, you know, monitor buildings. Uh, we've seen a lot of those that are just dramatically changed the economics of buildings. Uh, and so keeping up with that, uh, deploying those technologies in a way that makes sense, uh, setting standards around those policies that make sense, uh, and certainly some uh, incentives, you know, for people to enact those policies. Those are all kind of tools in the policymakers toolkit. Um, also, I think we've seen kind of a broader look at what green buildings uh, means. Um, you know, that include, you know, disaster resilience, um, you know, just, uh, you know, sustainability, you know, reusing materials, uh, those kind of things, uh, embodied carbon, uh, you know, in buildings, you know, how do we measure that? How do we value that? Uh, and so there's a whole lot of new tools, I think, that uh, can help because if you can't can't measure it, you can't value it. Yeah, there and are so a lot I think of. That's another thing we've seen happening. Well, it's it, and I was just going to say there's there seems to be a lot of terms or or techniques or ways to measure embodied carbon, energy efficiency, uh, carbon neutral, net zero. There's a lot of terms out there, and so what are the do you have a sense of, of what's going to be the winner or is it the combination of all those things that gets us across that finish line? Yeah, right now, as, as you, you know, point out, there is no clear single standard. Right. Uh, and right now I think it's a competition for, you know, who's going to be that standard or combination of standards. Um, and certainly that's being driven by uh, technology as being driven by uh, consumer demand. You know, consumers more and more are, you know, if they're looking at, at you know, comparing apples to apples, you know, they're, they're you know, pretty heavily voting with their dollars uh, for things that are more sustainable. Uh, and so that's that's been a high value for consumers. And I think businesses are, are rapidly, you know, the ones that are on the on the cutting edge are really trying to adapt and take advantage of that. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned, which is, is uh, that you know, technology or rather policy tends to follow technology. And we're seeing these days more and more uh, smart building technology, the Internet of Things, this sort of automation, this idea that you can control building systems from you know, your phone or your iPad or, or even with AI, I suppose, you can actually monitor systems. I mean, do you think that where do you think policymakers are on understanding the benefits of that and how it can relate to sustainability yeah it's um again they they're playing catch up um you know good example when i was in the congress one of the pieces of legislation that i sponsored and got passed working with our uh, high performance building coalition was a federal building managers training act 
And again, at the time, there were some great statistics. If, you know, the better trained your building managers were on the technology that, you know, it was a great savings uh, in terms of efficiency of your building, just having them trained, mm-hmm. you know, let alone being, you know, technology agnostic. But now there's so many tools uh, in terms of managing those buildings uh, that a technology is provided that literally you can, you know, carry in your phone in your pocket uh, to manage, you know, fleets of buildings. Uh, so that that really has been a game changer in technology. And just a good example, you know, if you're uh, trying to move the needle on this for a, a policymaker, you know, what are your, your tools are, you know, you can set standards, you know, you can have incentives, you could have mandates, although people don't generally like mandates, uh, but they like incentives and they like to have options um, and, uh, you know, having some common standards. So I think those are some really important tools for policymakers. Uh, and then frankly, in the business community, you know, developing those uh, kind of standard business practices that are acceptable uh, across the private sector uh, can also, uh, through many, you know, industry associations, they're also trying to raise standards that can, you know, improve sustainability. Again, for them, uh, they're being driven, I think, mostly uh, because it's good business. Yeah, if if you build it and people make money, they will come. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, switching gears a little bit, we recently hosted uh, President Macron from France here for his first state visit at the White House. And he, one of the first things he discussed with President Biden was the EU's concerns over some measures in the Inflation Reduction Act that, frankly, he and his fellow colleagues in the EU felt were almost punishing to the EU economy. Can you talk? You you were just in South Korea, correct? So and and thanks for, you know, suffering through your jet lag for being on the call. How do countries see the U.S. political system and our efforts on climate? Like, how how are how are other countries seeing the U.S. on these issues? I think it's a, a mixed bag, but I'll kind of talk broadly and and generally. Uh, first, uh, I think before some of these measures by the Biden administration. Uh, there was concern that the U.S. was at best foot dragging and, you know, at worst, you know, just not even, you know, trying to get on board with some of these international efforts uh, around climate and around sustainability. Uh, So with some of these historic uh, measures that have been implemented, including the the Inflation Reduction Act, um, there's concern that uh, perhaps it's, too much um, uh, so-called protectionism by the U.S. for you know U.S. companies and U.S. production and U.S. supply chains, but I think the U.S. I mean I just take um, uh, critical minerals for batteries as as one example, where um, the U.S. can do some of that by itself, but we can't do it all by ourselves, and so we've got to look at. Uh, friendly allied countries to help build out that supply chain and compete against China controlling that. So I think that's where, you know, whether it's uh, 
friendly allied country like Korea uh, or friendly allies in the European Union, we can uh, you know, look for ways that we can all be helping each other to accelerate and make these transitions uh, more, uh, do them more smoothly. Yeah, partnership is always uh, you know, a good asset, a good value <laughs> to have, certainly. And just speaking of well, partnership, and I suppose, and even as you work on buildings, you've sort of kept your toes in the political world, certainly know what's happening, and we were talking earlier about the debt ceiling and uh, some of the partisan uh, issues here in, in Washington. I mean, do you see you know, where you are in, in Missouri or just around the country? I mean, is there hope for bipartisanship and, and progress on some of the big issues that our country faces? Uh, we feel like we've been in a kind of a state of perpetual crisis the last you know, five years or, or more. You know, is, is there hope for, for folks who want to see the parties work together and get things done? Yeah. and I'm the short answer is yes. I'm, uh, and to me, I'm, I'm a, I would call a stubborn optimist. Uh, and I think, frankly, there's a, a great deal of just, uh, I'll call it extremist fatigue, uh, that, you know, most Americans are sort of in the great middle politically. They may lean a little left or a little right, uh, but politics have been you know, way too divided, uh, way too extreme. I think there's a real opening for uh, reasonable, you know, well-intentioned people to do their jobs and make progress. Uh, and that's where I have hope for, frankly, both political parties uh, to, um, you know, have more of that and less of the extremes. Because it's just not, it's not good for our democracy. And frankly, it's not good for just getting things done. You know, in the business community, you know, they like to have at least some degree of certainty. You know, if, as long as they know what the rules are and what the laws are and, you know, what the rules of the road are, you know, they go out there and they can innovate and, you know, make their products and take care of their customers. Uh, but it's this uncertainty. You know, the debt ceiling is probably one of the closest examples of that. It's like, saying you're not going to pay your credit card bill. So, yes, we have to pay our credit card bill. Unfortunately, there's going to be this sort of negotiating up to a cliff, and hopefully people are sensible enough not to go over the cliff. But uh, we shouldn't, the country shouldn't be having to go through that kind of uncertainty. Well, you're, and you make an excellent point. You're absolutely right. And you're very active in politics in your state and, and around the U.S., is this an inside the beltway issue that we're concerned with, or is it is it is it more across the U.S. In your opinion, it it really is across the U.S. Yeah. and it, it's obviously very visible in Washington, but we see it in our you know state legislatures and even in some local governments. We see these same kind of of extreme divides, and like I said, people are uh, there's just a great deal of fatigue around this, rightfully so. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing that we can't let happen is we can't let this stop, you know, good people from both parties, you know, stepping up to be candidates or to support candidates or to go vote. It's like we're all going to be better off if we listen and we learn, we stay engaged, you know, we go vote, we do our, our civic duty as citizens. 
and so I just want, I don't want to continue to be encouraging to people, you know, don't, you know, the worst thing that can happen is for people to disengage and say, oh, I'm just so frustrated. I'm just going to stay out of it and do nothing. That's really bad for the country. So uh, again, I'm a stubborn optimist. I think people are going to step up. Uh, we've seen that um, in a few places around the country where we've had a really big jump in turnout of young people, especially. That really gives me hope uh, that you know young people who have the most stake uh, in this uh, are showing up more. Uh, so anyway, that that gives me hope. Yeah, I think it's it's true to, to your point. I think there's a tendency for the politicians, the elected officials who are the most controversial, the most strident sometimes to get a lot of the attention. And we know some folks like that, whereas, you know, there are so many public officials, and I would count you as one who, when you're there, you got things done and you worked across the aisle and you worked to get things done. As a, a former congressman, I mean, what would be your advice to folks who are maybe thinking about getting involved in the political system, even running for office, and who perhaps feel a little bit like, well, it's just it's just gridlock, it's just frustration, it's just yelling. What, what's your advice to, to folks who maybe want to get involved? Yeah, if you don't like it, get involved. If you think, <laughs> yeah. it, can be, if you think it should be better, get involved, because doing nothing uh, is going to let the, you know, the people on the extremes have uh, an outsized voice, um, and it's not going to get better. Um, so that's, that's my advice, you know, uh, not everybody, uh, you know, can stand up to be a candidate or actually run for office, but everybody uh, is, you know, if it's a citizen, can step up and do their civic duty and, you know, vote, get involved. And uh, that, to me, uh, is the best thing that all of us can do, because if we all do that well, we're going to have we're going to have better outcomes and, uh, and, and our government's going to work better. Well, I don't think we could have said that any better. That's I don't amazing. think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Russ, we really appreciate you taking the time today, and we can't thank you enough You know your busy schedule. Um, we are thrilled to have had you, and, and we you know are really excited about some of the things you had to say today. So, again, thanks. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Best to you, and look forward to working with you all on, uh, on stuff down the road. Outstanding. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, that interview was really great, talking to Russ. He's amazing. Uh, he's a great guy. He just knows so much and understands really how the process works and also understands what the opportunities are uh, in the building sector to really transform buildings. I think that really came across. I can't thank him enough for joining us today. And so that about does it for our first attempt at podcasting. <laughs> uh, we are a monthly podcast. And again, we can't thank you enough for tuning in to Political Shadings, sponsored by Somfy North America, the biggest company you've never heard of. Uh, I'm John Lawyer, Head of Government and Public Affairs for Somfy. And I'm Andrew Goldberg, Principal at Agora Consulting. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to catch you on the flip side in about a month. Political Shadings, thanks a lot.